with this expectation. And so Jesus starts off there in Luke 18, the parable is giving us sort of the header and it says, and he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray. And so the word ought there is very strong. It's a, it's a verb that means that you need to do this. That you have something beyond just an obligation, but you have a need for it to be done. Second, the frequency and fervency of prayer. He said that you ought to do it at all times. And the way that the structure of the phrase at all times is this idea that it is both frequent and fervent. That it's this thing that's on your mind that you're doing regularly because you really believe that it matters. Paul talked about this. He said pray without ceasing. He's picking up on Jesus' lesson. Pray without ceasing. And so it's oughtness or it's necessity, it's frequency, it's fervency. Also, the incentive not to lose heart. What's he doing here? Well, Jesus is telling you that you need to pray, you need to do so frequently, and it is a mechanism by which you will not lose heart if you trust the God to whom you pray. Why is he saying this? Because it's really common for us to be prayerless. And I don't know about you, but I've lost heart before. You ever lost heart on something? You just, you just, you finally, you're like, it's not going to happen. And you just give in. And there's this, this losing of heart that's, it's, it's like losing the encouragement of, of trusting God. I've gotten to that place in my life at times and in seasons. And then finally, he kind of draws together, letter D, the relationship between prayer and enduring faith. You'll miss it if you don't see how he closes the parable. He opens the parable with this header, the Holy Spirit inspiring Luke to say, this is what this is about, and then Jesus fleshing it out. And then at the end, Jesus making a final statement. What is the final statement? It's in verse 8, halfway through. He finishes the, the parable by saying, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? In other words, is the kind of faith that this woman had, this widow, is that kind of faith going to be the kind of thing he encounters when he shows up? In other words, will we be like her when he arrives? This is important. Because he's going to give us an example. And he's going to say, you ought to be like her. And so, he's putting a relationship between prayer and enduring faith. Now, there are two things that go with that. First, prayer is an, it's, it's, it's an expression of enduring faith. But it's also a nourishment for enduring faith. It's both an expression, that way that you share your enduring faith is through prayer. But it's also the very thing that nourishes it. That's why Jesus finishes the parable with the idea of this kind of faith. In other words, Jesus is saying, when I arrive, will I be arriving to a group of people who are pleading for His return? Are we today pleading the way that John closes the Bible in the book of the Revelation? Where His final expression of prayer is... Even so. What does he say next? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. 
Because Jesus' arrival is actually going to be the summary answer to the prayer of the widow. I'll tie those together in just a moment. Number two. The parable tells the story of the interaction of three individuals. Well, who are they? Well, he starts off with the first person, letter A, the judge. There was, verse 2, in a certain city, a judge. All right? So, we need to know three things about the judge. First thing you need to know is his power. This judge has the power to execute judgment. He has the power to execute justice. He has, he has the more or less the supreme power over the particular situation. That's why he's being appealed to. He's being appealed to as the supreme power. Second, interesting thing is his character. Notice what it says about him. There's a judge who did not fear God. That's bad character. This guy is not the kind of judge you would want to have. But this is his character. And so Jesus is making sure that you know the character of the judge. Because it's got a point in something that's going to come later. So you need to know about his power. He can have the authority to resolve, listen carefully, to resolve what he's about to be asked about. Then his character, not good. Finally, his disposition toward image bearers. Notice the next phrase, and did not respect man. So the judge had the very, uh, he, he had the very least likely qualities to be a good judge. He had the power, but he didn't fear God, so his character was like, and then he didn't care about people. He did not value, he did not have a right disposition toward image bearers, toward his fellow men, toward human beings. Second character in the story, individual, is the widow. Let her be the widow. Now, that's going to tell us something immediately by her description, letter A, her vulnerability. In that day, it was almost impossible for a widow to survive under a, a society that did not value women. They had a utilitarian view of womanhood, but they didn't have a view that respected their ability to own and manage property. They didn't respect their um, powerlessness uh, in, in that vulnerability that they should care for the widow. Um, that's why James says true religion is this, to care for the widow and the orphan. Why? The widow and the orphan are the two most vulnerable in society. So, her vulnerability. She's weak. She comes to him. Verse 3. There was a widow in that city. So, as, ever, as soon as the word widow came out in Jesus' story, everybody knew that she would be vulnerable because she had really no voice. She had no protection over her. So somebody could come in and because her husband couldn't uh, any longer provide for the family, they could encroach on her property and they could, in, in a sense, foreclose on her property. And she would not have, unless the court stepped in, she would not have legal protection to keep what she rightly owned. And so she's coming with vulnerability. Second, she's coming in need. The opponent is after her. It's likely that he's taking advantage of her, either charging her exorbitant interest 
or foreclosing on what she owns or encroaching on her fields and property and she has no way to say, no, no, that's not the right boundary because there's no man to represent her in the government there. And so she has to appeal to the judge. And so she comes with a great need. She's losing ground. Third, Jesus notes her request, frequency, and persistence. What is her request? Legal protection. You see it in verse 3. She came to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. And for a while he was unwilling, but afterwards he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow bothers me, what is she bothering him with? Her frequency and persistence. It wasn't just that she showed up. It's that every time she showed up, she persistently asked for justice. She says, give me legal protection. Give me justice. And so she's showing up. There's a judge there. There's a guy taking advantage of her. She's falling prey to him, losing property or value, losing crops or something that's uh, treasured her. Or she's being charged exorbitant interest on maybe a loan that her husband had before he passed away. And there's nobody to help her to pay that. So all this stuff is coming down. So she's pleading. So the widow has a request that made frequently and persistently. She keeps asking for the same thing. We also need to see the opponent. Look in letter C of number two. Letter C, and I got my numbering wrong here. I don't, I don't know how I did that, but you can keep up. There we go. First off, I want you to notice the opponent's power. Her power is such that she needs legal protection. In other words, whatever he's doing is stronger than her. This is important in the story. If you miss this, the rest of the story, it won't be like when you hear the rest of the story on the radio because you'll just miss the story. This is the one thing. The power that she's dealing with is above her, but under the judge. You tracking with this? The power she's dealing with is above her, but under the judge. His power is not ultimate, but his power is greater than her power. All this is going to come together in a minute. I think you're probably already going, I think I know where this is going. I want you also to notice his injustice. What is he doing? He's treating her unjustly, unjustly, in such a way that she actually needs justice. She's pleading to him for legal protection or justice. So that's, that's his, her plea. Because he's treating her in a way that's causing her to suffer unjustly. And so he's exerting a power over her that is oppressing her, harming her, causing damage, wounding her. Don't know exactly what the backstory is, but we know that he's more powerful than she is, but less powerful than the judge is. Finally, number three, under letter C, his relentlessness. He is not bothered by her efforts. He is not scared 
of her. He stays after her. He keeps the oppression on. Even though she is constantly going to the judge, he doesn't back off just because he sees her doing this. He stays. In fact, he might increase the suffering when she does go to discourage her from going back. Remember how in the children of Israel when God first confronted Pharaoh through Moses and Pharaoh's response was to increase the pain and suffering of the Israelite people so that they would go to Moses and say, look, our life is hard enough. Don't go back to Pharaoh because he's kind of like doubled our workload because you went and talked to him. How about you don't go and talk to him anymore? Now, this is playing into our understanding of prayer. It's going to be vital in fleshing this out in our own lives. Just because, I'm giving my conclusions a little ahead of time, but let me tell you this, just because you pray, Satan does not back off you. In fact, when you start getting on your knees, he may come relentlessly after you. So that you will be discouraged from praying again. You might get on your knees before God and say, Oh God, I'm like that widow and I am pleading now for your justice and the injustice that you're under. Whatever the enemy is doing to you may actually increase to a fever pitch so that you, like the Israelites, when they were in bondage, things get worse because you asked for relief rather than get better before the deliverance comes. So I'm going to close with some comparisons and then ask you to do something at the end. The parable compares five things. What are they? Well, first, the parable compares the judge to God. It calls the judge a man who is what? Well, go to the next slide. His power, His characteristic, His disposition. God's power, character, and disposition are infinitely better than that judge who gave the woman relief. The the judge that was bad in character, he did have power, and bad in his disposition toward human beings, he granted her relief simply because she irritated him. And he said, you need to start thinking about who you're praying to, and what his power is, and what his character is, and what his disposition is. All through the Bible, God invites us to come to him because his disposition is loving, so he can use his power to win our battles. Think that through. Constantly, that's the lesson of Scripture. That we would humble ourselves and come to Him and know His power and His character and His disposition toward us. That's why He uses the word elect here. That is God's chosen people. It's a glorious word that has to do with God's favor by God's own will resting upon particular people because of His interest in them. It's a wonderful word. It's used of Israel in the Old Testament and the wonder of Him delivering them over and over. And it's used of the church in the New Testament. And the blessing of Christ upon us. Next, letter B, there's a comparison of the widow to the elect. Well, what do we know about the widow and what do we know about the elect? Well, her vulnerability. I want to tell you something. If God removed His power over the enemy from this earth, 
We, we don't even understand. We do not even comprehend. When you start reading through the book of the Revelation, you start seeing what Satan's really about. He is nothing but a thief who wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And you read through the book of the Revelation and you see what it looks like when his power blossoms just before his fall. Just before his defeat. It is horrid. We're vulnerable. We are in need. We operate under the power of this oppressor. We're going to come to that. And we ought to be the people who are requesting with frequency and persistence the intervention of God. Number, letter C. He compares the opponent to the enemy. Take a look in verse 7. Now, shall not God bring about justice for His elect who cried to Him day and night? Well, why do we cry to Him? We're living in a fallen world. That the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the glory of the gospel of Christ. The enemy is roaming like a lion to and fro, seeking whom he may devour. you got all these pictures of what Satan is, a thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy the wolf who comes to, 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 to dine on the sheep. You've got all of these pictures of what the enemy is like. And so the opponent is always putting injustice on the widow as our enemy is always putting injustice and pain and suffering on the elect. He's coming after the church. So there's this comparison. Look at the opponent. He has power. Just like the judge... His power is over us, but under God. If God doesn't exercise a deliverance for us from the power of the enemy, we certainly aren't going to be able to do it. This is why cursed is he who trusts in man. You want to beat Satan with your power? You want to win the war with your money? You want to defeat him with your politics? You want to fix him with your social point of view? You want to win with those things? He is going to smack you down. And he does not care what happens when you're smacked down. He is merciless. But we know who is over him. So we appeal to a power above Satan. That's why cursed is he who trusts in man. Why? Because we're never going to win this war with human strength. But God's power... His authority. And so the power of the opponent, the injustice of the opponent, and the relentlessness, all the same description as Satan is given in the Bible. Letter D. The persistent plea is compared to the fervent prayer. The persistent plea of the widow, she's wearing the, the judge out, and the fervent prayer, what's it sound like? It says in verse 7, who cry to him day and night. If we want to see change in our community, if we want to see change in our families, if we want to see change in our state, if we want to see change in our nation, it will not be leveraged by human means. Are you, are you with that? We've been trying to win an unwinnable war. Why? Because we've been sold an idea that politics... Money and smarts can make us better, can fix our nation, can repair our communities, 
And you can throw all the politics and all the money and all the human smarts you want at any situation. And the fundamental issue is a gospel issue, a salvation issue, a new heart issue, an eternal issue, not a temporal issue. And so here, this persistent plea is like the fervent prayer day and night crying out to God, God, heal our broken marriages. God, heal our broken children. God, heal our broken parents. God, heal our broken siblings. God, heal our broken families. God, heal our broken communities. God, do these things day and night if the church pled day and night for these things. I believe we would see a difference. But I don't think that's what we're doing. Am I right? Anybody say, yeah, that's right. I don't think it's what we're doing. Who's pleading day and night for the change? Who's pleading day and night for our families? Who's with just a few? This should be the common, the norm. The widow should be the elect. The elect is the church. The church should be doing this. The persistent plea. And notice, finally, letter E, the answer of the judge is compared to the answer of God. Look in verse 7. Now shall not God bring about justice for His elect? God wants to intervene. Is, is that an amenable thing? Not because I'm fishing for amens, but God wants to intervene. Is that the kind of thing you say, oh yeah, that's true. He wants to. But He is teaching us here that He is not intervening in the lives of the passive. He will let us try human strategies Long enough for things to get bad enough that we'll finally cry out to Him. All you have to do is read the book of Judges. Just read it. The book of Judges tell one story over and over. What is the story? God redeems a people. The people grow distant from God in their self-confidence. In their self-confidence, they grow prayerless and more distant from God. In their distance from God, they try human means to operate their lives, their families, their country, and suddenly an oppressor comes in, takes control over them, and holds them until they finally break at the point, and it says, and they cried out to God, and He delivered them. It's over and over and over. It's like one story over and over and over again in the book of Judges that says one thing. God is waiting for His people to cry out to Him and say, Come, help us. Come. Now this can come in a thousand forms. It's not always this, oh, I'm on my face and I'm so desperate and I'm screaming. This could be simply the true practice of your daily prayer 
where you before the Lord are pleading on the behalf of your family, on the behalf of your neighborhood, on the behalf of your community, on the behalf of your city, on the behalf of your parish, on the behalf of your state, on behalf of your nation, on behalf of the world, where we're pleading to God and we're asking Him. It doesn't have to be such a desperation that we're all sackcloth and ashes, but this regular practice. And that's why Jesus said, you ought to always pray. And here, there's this answer. Now, what is the enemy of all this? What is the enemy? Comfort. That's it. Comfort. This is the thing that gets us passive. We got plenty of food, got plenty of clothing, cars running, bills are paid, houses warm in the winter, cool in the summer, streets are paved, got a job, got health insurance. And those comforts begin to turn us passive. Because we feel like, I got what I need. Why is everybody so desperate? Why is everybody complaining? It's all good here. While in Venezuela, they're starving to death. Do you know who's there? Right in the middle of Venezuela? The churches that our international mission board started 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, Brothers and sisters in Christ who are giving up their food to feed their neighbors and their townspeople and they're desperate and they're starving. We're comfortable. I don't know. I feel a little desperate today. I don't know about y'all, but I have a breakfast. I had good coffee. I get desperate when you don't have coffee. Yeah, there's an amen there. Go ahead. I mean, that's the desperation of a North American. When do I get desperate? You know when I get desperate? I get up and the coffee pot's not washed. That's when I get desperate. I'm just saying, oh, I can't believe the coffee pot's not washed. I'm desperate. Man, I want some coffee! Comfort is the enemy of fervency, it's the enemy of frequency. And so what, what we need to do today, and what I want to go home with and bring, bring to a conclusion, is I want, to, I want to ask us, do we look anything at all like the widow in the story? Do we look anything like her? Because that was Jesus' whole point of the story. He was saying, this is what you should look like. You should look like her. You should see, you should be able to look out as a church at the viciousness of an oppressor who is ripping our society to shreds. You ought to be the lookout and see that and get desperate. 
We ought to be able to see the Venezuelans, the Iraqis. We ought to be able to see the Syrians and the Indonesians and the Chinese church under affliction. We ought to be able to see that there is an oppressor who is unjust and unjust and he's sowing seeds of injustice everywhere he plants and he is a destroyer. And our hearts ought to be like the hearts of the widow because we are at one with with our brothers and sisters who are in the faith, and we're at one to a degree with all of humanity and image bearers, and we ought to be pleading to God day and night, Lord, bring the kind of revival to us that removes His oppression. That removes the destruction. I remember reading of one of the revivals that broke out in New England years ago. And the force and power of the revival was so strong that every bar in town had to close for lack of drinkers. It's crazy. The police became incredibly bored because they didn't have anything to do. They sat around and the police were like, what are y'all going to do today? So we sit right here in the office. No criminals in our... It was just Amazing. That came on the heels of some of the greatest times of prayer in American history where people cried out night and day for God to do this work. And so, I want to go home thinking about one thing today. Are we like the widow? Maybe tonight as you lay down in bed, you could just take a minute, just read. Just read this. Maybe in your small group tonight. Just read Luke 18, 1 through 8. And just say, Do I look like the widow? Or has my comfort, my wealth, my status, or whatever, has it just made me self-confident and trusting in man instead of God? Bow with me, please. I always love to preach to you. It's such a joy to me. But as your your pastor, you need to know something. This is probably the greatest weakness in my life. This very thing. I'm very unlike the widow. And I don't want to be up here in front of you today and you thinking, man, I wish I could pray like Bart. (laughs) No, you don't want that. No. I don't want to pray like Jesus or Paul or some great saint that you know here in our midst who's a prayer. So I just want to invite you to self-examination today. In light of the goodness of God in the gospel, that Jesus really did die for our sins. He really was raised from the dead. He really has ascended and He really is mediating on our behalf right now. And He's there waiting for us to live this parable out. And He's going to make our plea right to the Father. We're going to come now to a judge who's all-powerful and we have a mediator to Him who's going to ask that judge on our behalf and He's going to answer Because the people cry out, God, make us like the widow.
And my brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that in the history of the world, many times the only way people ever got to the place like the widow is that God allowed them to get into a situation in which they had to cry out. Countries, churches, families, individuals. They got into a situation, they finally just had to cry out. And God answered them. But we don't have to get that far. We could cry out today. Would you join me in seeking to be like the widow? And as a church, in seeking God. Please stand. As God leads you, respond to Him.